0: Welcome to another Take 15 interview from CFA Institute. I'm Dave Larrabee, and today I'm joined by Meb Faber. Meb is co-founder, chief investment officer, and fund manager at Cambria Investment Management. He's also a prolific writer, having authored numerous articles, white papers, and five books, including his most recent, Invest with the House, Hacking the Top Hedge Funds. Meb, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Uh, Well, you take a quantitative approach to investing, which helps you avoid many of the common behavioral uh, pitfalls. In your experience, what are some of the most destructive biases that investors face?
1: I, I don't know if it helps me avoid all the pitfalls because we still have all the same drawdowns and exposures, but at least it makes it systematic. And the way that we got to this is I have all the biases, so I'm overconfident. I'll take more risk if you can give it to me. But at least starting to understand what a lot of these biases are helps you craft and and understand your reactions to approaches. And we talked a little bit today in in the talk about expected returns. And so examples like being overconfident, expected returns that are just unlikely in the future. um, If you start to be able to frame it in a way that you understand that what we really evolved you know the savannah millions of years ago was not the right world for did not prepare us for a world of trading ibm and asset allocation and shorting stocks and investing right history did not teach us to run towards the lion which in many cases in in investing is things you want to be doing like investing in value investing in things that have gone down and selling the things that are dear so start to learn a little bit about your own biases but also a little history can help give people a lot more comfort and have um, future outcomes a little more certain.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, home country bias is a, a common affliction, um, and in the U.S., investors have what 70, 80 percent of their portfolios invested in U.S. stocks when. U.S. stocks make up roughly what half of the global market cap of stocks. So, what's behind this home country bias, and how does it impact uh, investors' portfolios and returns?
1: It's it's pretty simple, and it's also understandable. For the same reason, I'm a Denver, Denver Broncos fan. I cheer for the the you know Virginia Cavaliers. It's what I understand. It's what's familiar. It's close to home, and it's comfortable. And I talk to so many investors around the world, but in the U.S. they say, well, I just don't understand foreign markets as much. But then you talk to foreign, it's the same thing everywhere, and everyone has it. It would be a little different if it was just Americans. Italians, just as bad. Aussies, just as bad. Everyone, the Japanese, everyone invests the most in their own markets. The problem is it's really a terrible idea because it gives you a lot of concentration risks that you don't need and isn't compensated for. And so ask any Greek. Brazilian Russian investor over the last five years, if it was a great idea to have 80% your own market, it's not. So there's other problems that that um, also causes, but in general, you want it to be diversified and you want to at least have the starting point of being the global portfolio, which in the case in the U.S. is half in the U.S., half abroad.
0: Okay. Um, now, you've noted the secular decline of dividend payout ratios over the years. Um, you've also suggested that uh, investors should instead focus on shareholder yield. Um, so if you would, take a moment to explain the concept of shareholder yield and what you've found in terms of any performance advantages using that metric.
1: Looking at dividends is one of the most irrational approaches we've seen over history. Now, people love it, and dividend stocks historically have worked great. And the reason they've worked is because it's been a slight value tilt. But if you look at a company and say, look, there's only five ways they can use their cash. All right. And it's, you know, pay a dividend. They could buy back stock. They could pay down debt. They could reinvest in the business or they could go acquire another business. That's it. You can't do anything else. And so what's happened in the U.S. is that CFAs will know, Finance 101, dividends and buybacks are the exact same thing. Given valuations, stock trading at normal valuation, ignoring stuff like taxes, they're the exact same thing. So what happened is, starting in the early 80s, the SEC passed a rule that let companies buy back stock, uh, gave them safe harbor for not being in trouble for buying back stock. And because buybacks are a more um, efficient means of distributing cash because they're not paying taxes on the dividends, more and more companies started buying back stock. And so what you've seen since the early 80s now, in any given year, Stock buybacks often outpace dividends. And so if you're a dividend investor, you're ignoring half of how companies distribute their cash. Same thing, same buyback investors make the same mistake. If you're focusing just on buybacks, you're ignoring dividends. So you need to look at this holistic measure. And we also say you have to look at net buybacks because a lot of companies issue a lot of stock. So dividends plus net buybacks. And the good news there is that has a very high correlation with free cash flow. And so if you have that approach, and also we recommend using a valuation filter as well, um, but buying back companies that have high yield and are cheap has historically been a wonderful portfolio. And on top of that, dividend stocks have historically underperformed in a rising rate environment. Whether that's happening now, it's been going on for two weeks, who knows, but shareholder yield stocks have historically done well in a rising rate environment. So we think it's a much better place to be.
0: Okay. active managers have been under fire of late. Um, and But there are still a few active managers out there who have demonstrated they can outperform the market over time. Um, You've studied a lot of these folks. Um, what are some of the common characteristics or traits that they share?
1: So there's a lot in that question. Um, one is, you know, we think of active and passive much differently than most. And so passive to me historically has meant only market cap indexing, but passive now today just means anything that's rules-based. As nonsensical as that be, and active is historically meant the way people think about it is the Peter Lynch or Warren Buffett, right? So the way that we think about true active is the guys that are out there, concentra- and you want to be concentrated, you want to look very different, and because otherwise there's no reason to pay high fees for a closet indexer. So. Bigger question, can you identify managers, are there managers that outperform, and can you identify those ahead of time? And we think you can, and we think it's actually not that hard. Um, There's been a lot of these managers, and the ones to look at, and we talk about this in our book, are these managers that uh, historically are stock pickers, they have long-term time horizons. So Buffett Buffett is a great example, and so they're not trading a lot, and they're value-oriented. And historically, that's a great pool to choose from, And the good news is you can look up holdings for any of those guys, totally free, once a quarter, they have to disclose their portfolios, and you can mimic or we call clone them. And in many cases, it's a wonderful way to either screen or get exposure to these hedge fund managers. The best part is you don't have to pay them a fee.
0: Now you've examined um, the performance of a a wide range of asset allocation models um, over the years, and you've found little difference in terms of returns. Um, One of your conclusions was that the impact of asset allocation has been overrated. Um, So what does that say about the importance of rebalancing our portfolios and and what, what should investors be focused on instead?
1: People spend way too much time on the asset allocation decision. In reality we say it almost doesn't matter as long as you have some global stocks, some global bonds, some global assets. That's a great core. And for that core, You should pay as little as possible and rebalance. If it's taxable account, rebalance based on cash flows and optimize it. If it's tax uh, exempt, you can rebalance once a year and be done with it. Pay as little as possible. There's there's ETFs and funds out there that will charge less than 30 basis points. You can be done. Go play golf. Go do whatever else you like to do and be done with the asset allocation. We think it's a commodity. However, if you then say, okay, I want to spend my time Either tilting that portfolio, so coming up with better indexes, maybe that move away from market cap. I want to come up with liquid alt additions, such as managed futures. You know, maybe long short equity, private equity, timber, whatever it may be, that may diversify that core. Fine, go spend your time doing that. We think that's a great way to do it. I mean, I've often said that managed futures is my desert island strategy. I think it's one of the best diversifiers. But for that basic core. I don't think you have to pay that much. Mm. And I think people spend way too much time worrying about it when in reality, yes, the results show that it it doesn't matter exactly how much you put in each little box. Matt, thanks
0: very much for sharing your insights with us today. And thank you for watching.
1: Copyright 2017, CFA Institute, all rights reserved.